If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'd open up to Titus chapter 3. We are at long last coming to the end of this little book that we've been in since August. If you've not been with us and you're wondering how in the world did you spend that long in a book that only takes up two pages in my Bible, well, you're going to kind of see some of that today. We're going to do uh, a flyby back through where we've been today, going to hit some of the high points of this powerful little book. And at the end of today, I hope to bring you some things in terms of what do we do with all this? We, we've been talking about Titus as a blueprint for the church, that, that this is God's design that we're talking about. This series is called By God's Design, and we've been talking about how God has created the church for a specific purpose, but he's not left us to our own devices and trying to figure out how to do this thing that we call church. He's given us a lot of instructions uh, some of which we follow pretty well, others we kind of disregard, as we'll talk about a little bit today. I went and looked through our uh, office this week and, and found the blueprints for the building in which you're sitting right now. This building's been around for 15 years or so, and this is what they used in order to build the structure in which you're seated. Now, and when they first built this building, uh, it wasn't necessarily, they didn't necessarily have it in mind to do what we're doing in it now, um, but we ought to be very thankful for whoever did these blueprints. I'm thankful uh, for the guy who had to figure out on one of these pages, it shows these beams running over our heads that are keeping this roof from falling in on us. I'm thankful for that guy, aren't you? That, that this roof is holding up because somebody smarter than me was able to put on paper how to support a roof this wide and this long, and it's here in these plans. There's all kinds of details that you'll see in here, down to the doors, what kind of doors they would be, how, and what, the way the windows would be positioned. You can find all kinds of information in here. For the most part, as you look through these plans, you'll find that they followed the plans really well. But I did find one discrepancy in the plans. In the original plans here, as you look uh, at the design of this ceiling, in the original plans there were meant to be three ceiling fans, but we have four. There would have been one there, one there, and there would have been one right over my head. Now, as a believer in the sovereignty of God, I am so thankful that whoever built this place did not put a ceiling fan right there. You know why? Because if you remember in our old sanctuary, there was a ceiling fan right over the pulpit, and all it did was blow the pastor's Bible pages every stinking week. It was the most annoying thing in the world to get up trying to read the scriptures and the fan is whipping your pages over as you're trying to read. So God in his sovereignty protected us from that by leading whoever put these fans up to put them out to the sides here. And of course, they didn't know at that time that we were going to eventually have a stage right in this spot. That shows you just how powerful God is. I know I'm kind of making light of a serious subject there, but I just want to say this. This is a good plan. This is a great building, a blessing to our church that we have been able to use in ways that it wasn't necessarily designed for, and yet it has, an, has allowed us to do some things that we would not have been able to do otherwise. But I want to say this. These are great plans, but these plans are worthless unless you have a great builder. You see, because if somebody had come to me 15 years ago and said, hey, we have got a great set of plans for a family life center that we'd like to put on this spot in the parking lot. First of all, 15 years ago, I didn't even know McQuaidy, Kentucky existed. But if I had and somebody had come to me and said, we've got this great set of plans of this family life center that we want to put out here behind our parking lot that we want to be able to use for the glory of God, I would have said, that's a great plan, but I'm no builder. You see, I can look at these plans, and, and I can see all kinds of great ideas. I can see that somebody spent hours and hours. I can even see a stamp from Frankfurt that shows that somebody outside of this place looked over these things and said, yeah, that'll work. We're going to approve you to build that structure. But if all we had were these plans and we had no builder, what good would it be? It'd be no good, would it? 
I want to take that and apply it to the book of Titus this morning. This is a marvelous plan that we have seen in this tiny little book hidden away in our New Testament. But I want to say this. Unless we have the builder, the plan is just a piece of paper. Psalm 127 says this. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen keep watch in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For the Lord gives to His beloved sleep. Church, I want to say this to us. It is the desire of my heart that we would follow the plan that we have seen outlined here in the book of Titus. But I want to warn us with this before we finish this series up, before we proceed with some of the things that I'm going to share with you at the end. Unless it is the Lord God Almighty who builds this house, we labor in vain. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to spend my life in vain. And so before we finish today, we're going to ask that the builder would do what only he can in our midst. Titus chapter 3, these last four verses, would you stand with me on honor of God's word this morning as we read these last four verses together. The Apostle Paul wraps up this book like he does many of his letters, and he says, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, again, writing to this young man named Titus, when I send these beloved brothers to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And here comes the verse we're going to dwell down on this morning, verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. And then as Paul often ended his letters, grace be with you all. And you can be seated. And Father, as we explore this scripture today, as we walk back through this powerful little book, this blueprint for your church, God, would you put deep within the cry of our hearts, Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain, and we do not want to labor in vain. So show us what you would have us to be and to do, and give us the courage and the conviction to actually do it. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to take a look at that verse 14 for a minute because this is going to guide us back through uh, this book. In verse 14, Paul says once again to Titus, let our people, let the church, the people of God, learn to devote themselves to good works. Now we're going to talk about what those good works are that he's, he's addressed in this book. But he says it for this purpose, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And isn't that our desire? That we would be able to be the body of Christ in such a way that we could help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. The Bible does talk about those who in the last days and when the Lord returns that their works will be burned up because they're like straw. They're they're works of straw that have no real meaning. They may have come and and done worship. They may have have come and had particular ministries, but their works were straw because I believe the, the main idea there being they weren't empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were just going through the motions of doing church and they weren't living as the people of God empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the things that only God can accomplish. We don't want our works to be in vain. So let's look today at God's desire God's design for a great church. That's what I believe this book is about, this little book of Titus. God's design for a great church. Come back to chapter 1 with me. 
We're going to walk all the way through this book uh, piece by piece, hit some of the high points, and remind you of where we've been over the last few months. First thing we saw in chapter 1 was we saw God's design for structure defined. Look, look at verse 5, and you'll see what I'm talking about. This is kind of the key verse uh, of this book, at least in the opening words here. And he says, Paul says to this young man named Titus that he left in charge of the church of Crete. He said, this is why I left you in Crete. Here's your purpose statement, Titus. Here's your mission for the church at Crete, which was a mess, we'll talk about in just a minute. But Titus was left behind by the apostle Paul to shore up the work there. And he says, this is why I left you. That you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Two main ideas there that, that I want you to see in that verse uh, about the structure that God desires for his church. First of all, the church is called to be an orderly church. God is a God of order. Have you noticed that? When you look at his creation, don't you see an order? Even in this time of year as the leaves are beginning to turn colors and as they're beginning to fall from the trees, we see an orderliness in the creation We look at our own bodies and we see the same kind of orderliness, the systems in our bodies that must work together and how intricately they must work together in order for us to continue living. And we know real clearly what happens when one of those systems, if your circulatory system stops working properly, it affects everything, doesn't it? One of, our, one of our members went to the hospital last night with some heart problems, and she's experiencing the reality of what happens when one of those orderly systems that God put within our bodies ceases to work as it ought to. You end up in the hospital or worse. And so God is a God of order, and the church is meant to be a place of order as well. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying here that we have to have all these rules and strictures. It's, it's not that kind of a picture necessarily, but there is an, a definite order that God has given to the church, and a piece of that, an important piece of that, and one of the things that has been so sorely neglected today is what he says in the rest of that verse. Put what remained into order. How will he do that? By appointing elders in every town as I directed you. It's an orderly church. It's also an elder-led church, an elder-led church. Now, when you hear that term elder, if you've not been with us, I want to remind you what that word means. The term elder is never used in the New Testament for a person of a certain age. Now, I'm not going to define that. You know, if you get your coffee cheap, we know, how, we know who falls in to that category. And some of, you are, some of you are looking forward to those days, and others of you can't believe you've already passed into them. That's not what this word means. This is not those of us that get our coffee cheap. Okay, the word elder is, is in the New Testament refers to a particular office in the church. It's what we often refer to as a pastor. Uh, interestingly enough, the word pastor only occurs one time in the entire New Testament, Ephesians 4.11. And even there, the word pastor is a compound word. It's actually pastor-teacher, a hyphenated term that's used there in Ephesians 4.11. But there, more often than, than, than the term pastor, we see this term elder or the term overseer these are three synonyms that describe the same office three aspects of the same office these men who are called to teach and to lead and to serve the local church you notice that i said these men that are called this is not in my understanding of the new testament what i believe the bible teaches clearly is this is an office that is meant to be filled by a multiplicity of men of different giftednesses that can lead each local church now, when we think of pastors, we, we think of the one dude whose name's out on the sign. Most often, that's who we think of. Who's the pastor of that church? But you look in the New Testament, and what you find is that each of the churches was given multiple pastors, multiple elders, multiple overseers to accomplish the work of shepherding the body. And we've seen some of those qualifications for the elders here in, in chapter 1 of Titus and over in, in the book of 1 Timothy and other places. We see them identified, but they always come in multiple numbers in each local church. Just take that in for a minute. We're going to come back to that idea before we finish today. Number two, look over in chapter two. We begin to see, well, we're still actually in chapter one. We're beginning to see God's design for sound doctrine. This takes up a large portion of the book of Titus is wrapped up in this idea that the church has to be founded upon sound doctrine. I would say in using the blueprint analogy, this is the very foundation of the church. 
This is the part that nobody really pays a lot of mind to. It is in the blueprint for this building, by the way, how the foundation is to be laid out. We don't think a lot about it, but we ought to be thankful that the foundation of this building is secure. And I think the question that it begs of us is the foundation of our church as the body of Christ, is it secure? You can answer that if there is sound doctrine upon which we are living and believing. That, that we are founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we understand clearly what this Bible teaches about the nature of God. About the nature of man. About who Jesus is and what he has done for us and what he intends to do for us in the future. We understand that the Holy Spirit is God, not just some impersonal force. That we, that we understand the nature of the church, that we are the body of Christ. The church is not a building, it is the people of God. These are doctrinal issues that we must get right. And you say, well, why must we? Because churches all over the landscape of America today are abandoning these foundational doctrines. And there comes a point when you abandon sound, healthy doctrine to such a point that it doesn't matter whether church is still on your sign or not. You cease to actually be a church because you no longer cling wholeheartedly to this word. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. Speaking about these church leaders, these elders, one of the qualifications was this. For each one, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He doesn't say he might or he ought to. He must. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there's two parts here. First of all, we need to be re-teaching healthy truth. There ought to be a part of doctrine that we get to where we kind of feel like, really, that again? Like, really, you're going to teach us that again? That's, how, that's where healthy doctrine becomes. It's like when you go to the dentist, okay? And the dentist does something, every time I go to the dentist, the dentist does something, I know we have a dentist in the midst that's going to probably talk to me after this. The dentist does something every time I go there that just bugs the fire out of me. He tells me I've got to floss. And that just bugs me, because I'm just going to be honest, I know this is gross, but I hate flossing. I hate flossing, I know I should do this. Every time I go, you need to floss. How many of you have heard that message before? Yes, Dr. Powers has probably spoken it to many of us. That's right. He's going to give us the amen there for that. But that's healthy, right? Why do we have to hear that message every time we go there? Because many of us don't do it like we should. And that's the way the church should be in teaching healthy doctrine. To keep repeating those things which are healthy for the body of Christ. To keep talking about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus is going to do for his people. To keep talking about the nature of man, that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. To keep talking about a God who is holy and righteous and dwells on an eternal throne. To keep talking about these things and all the more as we see the day of his return approaching. Because when we walk away from those healthy, sound teachings... We find ourselves in all manner of weirdness and chaos. So reteaching healthy truth, but also, as we saw at the end of chapter 1, rebuking false teachers. This is not pleasant, but it's necessary. False teachers were not just a first century issue. False teachers have existed within the church. And as I said, within the church. It's not just false teachers out there somewhere. False teachers within the church have existed since Paul wrote this letter. He's addressing the fact that in the church at Crete, there were false teachers that were teaching a, a combination of uh, Old Testament Judaism with the gospel. And he says, you've got to get away from that. You've got to silence those guys because they're screwing it all up. They're messing up the gospel with their teaching, and so you've got to muzzle them is the picture that he gives. You've got to muzzle those guys. You can't allow them to continue to spread their cancer in your midst. So it's reteaching healthy truth, rebuking false teachers. Then we get over into chapter 2 and begin to see some of the practical aspects played out. The first one is this. God's design for submission was displayed. Look at verses 5 and 9. You'll see two pictures of it. 
in verse 5, he's talking to these older women, telling them how to train up the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind. And then here's this word we don't really like. And submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. You fast forward down to verse 9, he's speaking to slaves, these bond servants in the Roman Empire. Again here, not, not in any way a commendation of slavery, just, just a recognition of the reality of it in this particular day. And he says, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith for what reason? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Notice the purposes in those two places of submission. For these young women to be submissive to their husbands so that the word of God may not be reviled. For these slaves to be submissive to their masters so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You see, submission to others mirrors our submission to God. You see somebody who is rebellious in their relationships with other people, and I can guarantee you that that same rebellion exists in their vertical relationship with God, whether or not they will say that or not. They, they may profess to be a solid follower of Jesus Christ, but if their relationships are characterized by rebellion and not right God-honoring submission then they prove by their actions that their profession is not accurate. Because submission to others mirrors submission to God. It's a Romans 13.1 type issue that all authorities have been instituted by God. And it'd be easy for some of us in this room to look at those verses and go, well, I'm not a young woman and I'm not a slave, so I'm, I'm exempt, right? Well, look at chapter 3, verse 1, and you'll see you're not exempt at all. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, remind them, the church as a whole, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, they're speaking of governmental authorities, which I know for many of us right now in our day and age when we're looking at what our government is doing these days, our first inclination in our sinful nature is to want to rebel against that. And yet let's not forget that Paul was speaking in the days of the Roman Empire, which just a generation removed from this particular letter would be taking followers of Jesus Christ and feeding them to lies covering them in oil and setting them on fire, crucifying them, beheading them. We could go on and on. Paul says our call as the people of God is not to live in rebellion, but to live in submission. And we have talked about there is a time for a thing called civil disobedience. When the government tells us to do something that runs directly contrary to the word of God, we must choose to obey God rather than men, as Acts chapter 5 says. But prior to that day, let us be known as a people who walk in submission to the governing authorities. So that when that day comes, we can stand out for the glory of God. And not just as a bunch of rebels. I think there's also a word here about prayer. It's kind of hidden there in, in these couple of chapters here. But I, I, I see something that I wanted to point out. My favorite definition of prayer is that prayer is dependence upon God. And I see in that word dependence kind of lining up toe-to-toe with this word submission. And really this word submission, though we kind of hear that word as an ugly word, it's a beautiful word. It means that I properly order my life according to the authorities that God has placed in my life. For the children here in this room, it means that I properly order myself under my parents' supervision and leadership until such a day that I leave their home and go and be joined with my husband or my wife. And even then, I continue to honor my parents. For those here in this room that are employed by others, it means that, that I recognize that while my boss may be the biggest pain in the neck that I've ever met, God put him in my life. And perhaps it will be my submission to him or her that might show them the love of Christ for the first time. We could go on and on with this, but submission is this beautiful, proper ordering of our lives according to God's plan. Number four, this morning we saw 
in chapter 2 as well, God's design for self-denial. For self-denial. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is kind of, this paragraph, verses 11 through 14, is really kind of the heart of this letter. It's really the heart of, of this particular letter. And he says, For the grace of God, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, now don't misunderstand that. He's not saying that all people will be saved, but he's saying this salvation is available to all people. No, you're not excluded by your gender, by your race, by your socioeconomic status, by your educational level. This is a salvation that's available for all people, gained for us by Christ. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's a self-denial there. Self-control is a, is, a, is a way of seeing ourselves, denying ourselves. Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, what do you got to do? Come to church every Sunday, right? Carry your Bibles, wear your Christian t-shirts, get your Ichthus bumper sticker. He didn't say anything those things, did he? He said, if you're going to follow after me, you got to take up your cross. Take up your cross and follow me. For anyone who wants to save his life, he's going to lose it. But anyone who would lose his life for my sake will gain it unto everlasting life. And so here we see a word about self-denial. Two things about that. First of all, we're called upon here to renounce the times. If you've watched the news lately, there's a lot to renounce these days. But let me say this, church, we have been far too silent for far too long. We have been far too silent for far too long, and in many ways we are reaping, we are reaping exactly what we have sown. We have sown our silence, and therefore we find ourselves reaping the benefits. The word renounce that he uses here, the word renounce when he says renounce ungodliness, you cannot renounce something unless you use your mouth. That's, that's wrapped up in that word. Renounce means that I verbally speak out against these things. Now I know, we want to keep a proper balance here as we're going to talk about in just a moment, but I know that many times that's, that people see the churches, that's all they're about. They're just the ones that are out renouncing everything. But in many instances, we have just been too far, far too silent. And we're reaping exactly what we've sown. It's time for us to begin to renounce the ungodliness of our times. To speak up with our voice. To speak with our votes. It's, it's a travesty. It's a travesty, the percentage of professing Christians that actually make it to the polls. And I'm not going to get all political here. I know some of you start to cringe when I go down these roads. Just listen up. It's a travesty, the percentage of professing Christians that go to the polls. It ought to be a hundred percent. Because first and foremost, we love our God. And also we love our country. We ought to be the greatest of patriots. Not sitting back in our spiritual lazy boys hoping that things will get better, but actually doing something about it, renouncing the times, and also on the flip side, redeeming the time. I love this phrase that's used in the scriptures a few times is redeem the time. Make the most of every opportunity you're given. We need to be speaking out against ungodliness, but at the same time, we need to be the ones living godly lives. Now, I know we can't do that in our own strength. That's why we, we depend upon the Holy Spirit. We ask God for the courage to stand up against ungodliness, at the same time, to live these godly lives. Both are necessary. If we only do one or the other, we're missing it. But to renounce the times, at the same time, to redeem the time, to live for Christ, to allow others to see the life of Christ being lived in us as we serve the poor, as we make ourselves nothing, as we follow him in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, take upon yourselves the mind of the attitude of Christ, who though he was in the very form of God, did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but he gave himself up for us. It's time for us to start giving ourselves up for others. Finally, this morning, we've seen God's design for sanctifying discipline. 
chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Paul comes to the end of this letter. I love the Apostle Paul in that he says the things that many of us would want to say, but we're not brave enough to. He saves the heart. You know, normally, if you were going to write a hard letter to somebody, you know, we like to do the compliment sandwich, don't we? I'm going to start the letter out with something really nice, and I'm going to make sure I end the letter with something really nice, but in the middle, I may get to that hard thing, but I'm going to come in there kind of sideways. No, that's not the Apostle Paul. Listen to how he comes to the end. He's talking about division in the church that was happening in the church at Crete there, divisive things that were happening. The body was divided over various issues. And here's what he says about a divisive person. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. The Greek word behind that phrase literally means shun him, which is a hard word. But have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And we've talked the last couple of weeks about this issue of church discipline. And the fact that the one, I believe the main, one of the main reasons why our churches are as unhealthy as they are is because we don't do church discipline anymore. We talked about how discipline is loving. Just as it says in Proverbs, a, a father, a loving father disciplines his children, and the one who avoids discipline hates his children. You know that old saying, he spares the rod, spoils the child? That came out of Proverbs, by the way, but it doesn't say spoils the child. It said he who spares the rod hates his son. So discipline is a loving thing. 150 years ago, if you were sitting in a Baptist church, you would be in a church that was known for doing discipline and doing it well at least for the vast majority of Baptist churches, but over the last 150 years, we have run away from what was given to us in terms of this loving act of church discipline. What kind of loving act is this? You say, well, it's like this. If we would begin to see sin in the lives of one another like a burning building. Now, you've heard me use this analogy, and I just want to give it one more time this morning. Not walking around with our spiritual batons to beat people over the heads, but simply seeing, if we see a brother who's beginning to move toward an adulterous relationship, cheating on his wife. We see a sister whose life is wrapped up in gossip. We see a child who is living in rebellion towards their parents. For us to get out of the spiritual lazy boy where we're sitting back and pretending as though it's not our business, that's not my problem, I don't have to address that, and doing the very kinds of things that we've looked at in the scriptures these last couple of weeks and loving each other enough to go and say, friend, brother, sister, your house is on fire. It's time to get out of there. But how many situations have we had in recent years, right here in this church. We don't have to go down the road somewhere. How many situations have we had right here in this church where if you had simply done what Jesus said in Matthew 18 and 15, when he said, if your brother is in sin, just pretend like it's not your business, right? No, if your brother's in sin, you go to him, show him his fault just between the two of you, and if he listens to you, guess what? You have won your brother. There's no greater prize than that except for the love of Jesus himself. And some of you have experienced that loving rebuke that has drawn you back from the edge of a cliff that would have destroyed you. Should we not also desire to do that for one another? So how do we do it? First of all, we must continue in preventive discipline. Think about preventive discipline like you would think about preventive health care. The reason that you eat healthy and exercise is so that you don't end up in that hospital. The reason that you get your oil changed every three to 5,000 miles is so that you don't have to have major work done on your car. The kind of preventive discipline I'm talking about is what we're doing right here, right now. Every time we come to this word and we hear God's word preached and taught, every time we hear that, there's an element of preventive discipline in that. If we're allowing the Holy Spirit to sink that deep into our hearts in such a way that it bears spiritual fruit preventive discipline preventive discipline is this worship gathering that we keep coming to this worship gathering to experience yes the love of god but also the love of brothers and sisters in christ to the point that i know 
I hope that you will know. I know that if I were to go astray, if I were to run toward some adulterous relationship, if I were to have some, some glaring, fiery sin in my life that's going to destroy me, I believe there are brothers right here in this congregation that would come after me, probably beat me upside the head and say, what's wrong with you? Come back to Jesus. That's preventive discipline in us coming to this place each week, worshiping together, growing in relationships with one another, dependent upon the Word of God praying for one another. There's many things that we do to prevent the moment when your house is on fire. But if your house is on fire, then you need corrective discipline, and we must not shy away from this church. We are living in an age where more and more our culture is calling good what the Word of God calls evil and calling evil what the Word of God calls good. More and more morality is flipped on its head. And we're seeing more and more of that in the church because we refuse to renounce ungodliness and to live godly lives. And again, because in reality, we just don't love each other enough to have those hard conversations. But God help us to. God help us to. In our last 15 minutes this morning, I want, I want to share with you a, a proposal that I've been praying about for over a month now, wrestling with, rewording, redoing. I, and still, as I stand before you this morning, I'm going to be honest and just say, I'm nervous about what I'm getting ready to share with you. For two reasons. I am one who struggles with the fear of man. I'm nervous about what you're going to think. But more than that, I'm nervous because what I'm about to share with you, once I let this cat out of the bag, I've got to do something with it. This is a moment of accountability for me because it's real easy for us to do the exact opposite of what the book of James says. Be, be doers of the word and not hearers only. It's real easy for us to walk through a series like this, walk through a Bible study. This is, this is what we do so much in the church these days. Well, check that one off. Done that next Beth Moore study. Done that next, you know, whatever. Whatever the thing might be, we, we check that box off and we move on. And we, how often do we pause to go, okay, Lord, what would you have me to do? God, this is your word. I don't want to just be a hearer of your word. What would you have us to do? God, you have shown us the blueprint. Now what would you have us to do with it? Here's my proposal this morning. I hope you'll hear this as, as words of love. I know there's some tough things in what I'm about to share with you. But they are important and God-honoring and Christ-exalting things that I believe are good for our church in these days. First of all, I believe we need to take a serious look at the structure of leadership in our church. For the last five years now, I've been with you for almost nine years. It'll be nine years in December. For the last five years, I have been gaining an increasing conviction that our church is not structured for growth. I'm not going to spend a long time on that idea. I'm just going to throw it out there and let you mull it over. But I believe that our church is not structured to grow beyond where we are right now. But we can be. God's got a, good, got a better plan. That's the good news here. We look back at Titus 1.5. What he said to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, I believe there is something in that verse that we need to pay mindful attention to. So what does that mean? Here's the proposal on paper as I have it written. I'm just going to read it to you. Pastor's proposal on leadership, that because of the pattern revealed in Titus 1.5 and other scriptures, that we would elect at our next business meeting, which will be next month, a team of six Corinth members 
comprised of both genders, multiple generations, and representing both worship services that would spend 2015 studying what the Bible says about church leadership structure, comparing it to what we currently have in our bylaws and practice, and bringing a recommendation to the church concerning needed changes at the end of next year. Again, these things are just coming for me. This is what I see is needed at this point. I pray you'll prayerfully consider that. By the way, these, uh, these recommendations are on our website as of today. The link at the bottom of your notes will not work properly. We'll get that fixed tomorrow. If you go to our website, corinthbc.org, there's a, there's a new link that says pastor's page on the left. You can click on that and you can see uh, these three proposals. The second one is this. I believe we need in these days to stake our faith firmly in Christ's lordship. Now, I know when you read that, many of you are probably going, well, haven't we already done that? Isn't that what it means to be the church? Isn't this kind of a, what do you really mean here? Folks, just look at our culture right now. Has there ever been a time in our generation where us recognizing the lordship of Jesus Christ, not just that he is a good and godly savior, that he is lord, he is master, he's the boss, he calls the shots in our lives. Has there ever been a time in our generation in which this was more needed? Because it's coming, folks. When you've got pastors in the city of Houston whose sermons are being subpoenaed, when you, when you have a majority of our, of our states that, that are affirming relationships that the Bible cannot affirm, it's coming the day when, I, when I'm going to stand before you and preach things that are going to risk me getting put in the slammer. And I pray that God's going to give me the courage to do it. But just look how quickly our culture is changing right now. And if we don't need to reaffirm that Jesus is Lord, and that we're going to be able to, willing to follow the Lord to the very end, whatever that end, we know what the ultimate end is, praise the Lord for that. But in these days, how much are we really willing to risk for Jesus? Here's the fullness of that proposal. Before I get to it, though, I want to remind us of Psalm 127.1. Spoke it to you earlier. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. I believe there is still a greater work to be done here at Corinth Baptist Church in this generation. But it's got to be done by the Lord and our dependence upon Him. And to that end, pastor's proposal on lordship that we as a church Commit to praying Psalm 127.1 for our church during 2015, believing that unless the Lord builds this house, our labors are in vain. We are asking for the Holy Spirit to move among us in power, direct us in what God desires us to do, and give us the power and courage to actually do it. Finally, as if those first two weren't enough, I believe we need to make church membership more meaningful in our day. I shared with you last week, we have 551 members of Corinth Baptist Church right now. If you're not in that 551, we would urge you, if God lays this on your heart, to join with us. We want to be living in a day where church membership actually means something. But here's the problem. Of the 551 members of Corinth Baptist Church, there are 212 of those who, as far as we know, have not stepped foot on this property in the last year plus. On the windows as you go out today, there are two lists. They're the same list in two different places. 48 individuals that are on our membership roll that we couldn't even contact if we wanted to. Our deacons have begun this very week following up with some of those 212, but there are 48 people on our membership roll that all we have is a name. No address, no telephone number, no email address. No last known address, nothing. We have nothing to even contact these folks. But you might. 
That's why we posted them. I want to make it. I want to make it one of our goals in 2015 to touch base with every person that's on that membership list and to determine one of two things: either one to encourage them to come back and be a part of what God is doing here, or in other cases, to recognize the biblical reality that the Lamb's Book of Life is not wrapped up in our membership roles. And church membership means nothing if we can't contact you, even if we wanted to. And what does that mean? It would be like someone giving me a child who was going to go live out in my garage. And I wasn't going to feed them. I wasn't going to allow them to come in and use the bathroom, take a shower. I wasn't even going to clothe them. I wasn't going to do anything with them. They're now a part of the family, but they're not connected to the family. They're neglecting the family, but even more so, the family is neglecting them. Folks, church membership needs to mean something in our day and age. Here's what it means for me. I'm praying for a day when the membership role will be comprised of those who are actually being shepherded and discipled by this local body. That's when it means something, folks. Not when your name's on a list somewhere and we, for 48 of them, we can't even contact you if we wanted to. But that church membership means we believe these are the individuals that God has entrusted to this local flock. I'm so convicted over Jesus when he said it is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd said, my sheep know my voice. And the good shepherd, if one of the sheep wanders off, what does he do? Well, I still got 99. That's what we do in a lot of our churches, isn't it? We don't need to worry about that one person. We've still got all these others over here. No, what does he say? The good shepherd, he leaves the flock and goes after that one sheep. Why? Because he loves that sheep. Because he loves that sheep. And we need to learn to love one another in that way, with that pursuing love. If you can help us find one or more of those 48 people on the glass there, I would appreciate it. This comes out of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and we'll end here. Verses that are so pertinent to where we are today. Let us consider, stop and think, how we might stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another And all the more, as you see the day, you'll notice day is capitalized, the day of his return. And for many of us, we are believing more and more that that's going to happen in in our generation. You see the signs of the times that I'm not going to get into today, but you see where our culture is headed and how the Bible speaks about those last days. And it's time for us to get serious about being the church and about doing what he has called his church to do. If you close your eyes and bow your heads just for a moment. The worship team is going to come, and we are going to sing a, a final song together. From our early service this morning, there were several individuals that said basically the same thing. It's it's time for me to get serious about serving Jesus and serving others. They heard a call away from a comfortable cultural version of Christianity into a New Testament type church that is radically different than what many of us grew up with. And so church, I ask you this morning, What would the Lord God Almighty who gave us 
this book of Titus have you to do as a result of this book? Perhaps for you this morning, it is a reaffirmation of Christ's lordship in your life, which I believe looks like handing him a blank check and saying, God, whatever you want me to do, you just show me and give me the courage to do it, and I'm, I'm all in. And I know whatever is a broad category, but that's what lordship looks like. Whatever, God. some it means God would you put within me that desire that pursuing love where I'm willing to link arms with others and go after those who've who've left this fellowship to begin to be the church not just in word but indeed as we love one another as we pursue one another God would you call me to action Father, it is time for us to act. I pray this morning that you would draw us from the spiritual lazy boy and that with the hammer of your word, you would smash that lazy boy into the ground that we may never return to it. that we might live for you in this ungodly age. That we might get serious about sharing this gospel, about being the church, and about doing what you have called us to, making disciples. God, I pray that you would call us to action this morning and not allow us to return to these places of complacency, but to hear your voice and say, yes, Lord, to your will and to your way. Yes, Lord, I will trust you and obey. And when your spirit speaks to me, Lord, my answer will be yes. So you speak, Lord. And teach us to obey. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together. We're going to share this song with one another. Opening words say, my life is yours. Let that be your profession this morning. Maybe you need to come to these places of prayer on either side and just pour out your heart before the Lord. Renew your commitment to Him in these days. Maybe there's a place of repentance that you need to come to. God, would you change my heart? Show me. Whatever God has put on your heart this morning, let's be a people of action. Let's share this song together.